1: Hi, this is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus, your host, with a new episode from Ramdas's archives. Actually, we're going to do something different this time. Usually, we pick out an excerpt from a talk of Ramdas's that's you know got a certain focus that I th- think at the time would be. An interesting theme for people. But this time we found a talk that Ramdas gave in nineteen ninety-three in February in Reno, Nevada. It was actually a benefit for Seva and Lama Foundation. Those of you, I think many of you know who those organizations are. Seva, of course, Ramdas was very involved in for many, many, many years. And uh What's really interesting about it and why I want to uh, play the entire lecture, which is a couple hours, I think we're going to play about an hour, a little more than an hour for part one, and um, a little under an hour for part two, it's so analogous with what is going on right now in our world, even though, of course, this was uh, 1993, and even some of the um, References he makes are, are like, he's all in wonder about, can you imagine a fax machine and, and I can sign something and they can get it across the world with my writing and signature? And it's like, wow, we're like uh, zillions of miles further than that in this day and age. So even though there are uh, antiquated slightly uh, references, it is still... Uh, extraordinary, how Ramdas uh, talks about what was going on then. The whole thing starts out about he uh, what is this moment about? What is this sense of change that was going on then? And um, so this is, uh, I think, sense of change is a, is a good title for this talk, and it's about. Um, the whole first part of this so you're getting trapped by the concept of change and it depends on perspective and this is a fascinating thing he does uh he got some incredible information from a friend of his peter russell to give a whole other big view when we're talking about change uh that is um part the earth is part of a galaxy there's billions of planets and you go well if the earth disappeared would there be uh would, would those other five billion planets notice? Okay puts it into a whole different perspective right um, Would it jar the galactic cosmic play? So the change that the changes that we're feeling, maybe they're pretty pretty small. How important are not or not are we? and again just think of where we are now in in this culture in this world of polarities and and so much trouble in the environment and the political situation and so on um so i i i think it's uh, it's so apt it's just uh, a wonderful uh, talk that he gave here uh and i'll just quote a, one thing that i i found was so inviting from the Prajnaparamita, paramita which is a an ancient text all this fleeting world a star at dawn a bubble in a stream a flash of light in a summer cloud a flickering lamp a dream i'm just reminded that uh, jack cornfield has this on when he sends an email out he's got a, a part of this in the email uh so this is about perspective around our sense of change um and getting a much bigger view so i think it's it's quite helpful um there's a good thing here from uh he says when when his holiness the dalai lama was asked what he thought of the big bang theory he said which one <laughs> oh boy what else um We're in a dance with the divine, so he he talks about that and talks a little bit about bhakti yoga and you know the yoga of of duality of of a loving a, a being until you are merged with that being and you go I don't know what you're up to but I love you, <laughs> and then he tells that great story that you never know story. If those of you who have not heard this about the farmer, who gets approached after you know one thing after another happens, some of it good, some of it bad. And, and just the basic premise of the mystery. It's it's really, uh, it's a wonderful story. And he's told it in many different uh, talks. But uh, uh, I've heard it a billion times and I listened again and I was just like, oh yeah. Always got to remember, you never know what outcome is going to have what results in your life. Uh, you and I have moved enough through consciousness to have a sense of the relative nature of reality, the nature of all these different perspectives, and your ability to do that means that you may be in a position where you are able to serve in a changing situation without freaking out. So a lot of this is is around that is using um, what we have and what. Uh, our practices have informed us how they have informed us, so that we can, uh, we can, be of some service. So, uh, so that's kind of a, a little bit of a summary and a surmisel uh, to give you an idea of what this talk is about. And Ramdas, in this again, it's part one. So. Uh, You'll have to wait for uh, the next edition of Ramdas Here and Now to get part two. I ended it in a pretty good place, although it's very contiguous. So uh, don't be mad at me. We're going to get the second part out there soon, within a couple of weeks, I think. So everybody. Uh, I think the one great thing here again is to just really the to inform us about where we are now in terms of the the changes that are going on and how radical they feel and how they grab us and they are grabbing us so viscerally and a little bit of a broaden your picture. As Ramdas puts us into kind of outer space to give us a little bit different perspective. So one, again, quite um, I have never heard him give quite a, a talk quite like this. So Ramdas here and now, everybody. I will be back with part two of this uh, uh, in a, in a couple of weeks, like I said. So please do enjoy and go to beherenownetwork.com. And you'll find Ramdas here and now. You'll find the page with the show notes, and uh, we'll give a couple of tips, like Peter Russell's book, which he referenced, uh, the Prajna Paramitra, the what else, uh, the the third patriarch, the Tao. I mean, there's great references and, and good uh, material to uh, to get uh, us a little bit more uh, in the flow of allowing for a sense of change. See you next week. Good evening.
0: Can you all hear me all right? I like those silences before the lecture begins. Um, Usually an audience allows a little bit of silence and then they start to get uneasy. And then they decide I must be meditating. So they look serious. But if it goes on too long, they begin to think that I there's a brain damage problem, (laughs) that I took too many psychedelics. on behalf of Seva and Rama, for which this is a joint benefit, welcome. I I don't know about you, but I've been sort of um, Wondering, um, what's happening these days? I mean, what is this moment about? And um, there seems to be, um, or some people feel there is a, a sense of change in the air. How many people feel there's a sense of change in the air? How many people don't? Great. Well, It's interesting to figure out how to characterize it and how much to get trapped by the concept of change. I mean, I, I guess it depends on where you're looking at it from. I mean, if you're uh, Edgar Mitchell or somebody out in space looking at this beautiful blue sphere, <clears throat> is anything going to change? Is it going to turn green? or Are the changes we're feeling that level of change? I was recently with a um, friend named Peter Russell who wrote a book called The Global Brain. And... Um, I asked him about um, giving me some perspective about the moment and he said well an interesting perspective you might want to work with is that um, it is now estimated, I mean you know this earth is part of a galaxy and this galaxy is part of many galaxies. Our galaxy includes all of the stuff we think about the sun and the moon and the stars and all that stuff. That's one galaxy. He said it's now estimated that there are as many galaxies as there are people on Earth. Like, say, five billion galaxies. So, if somebody in a small village in China dies, would you notice... So if the Earth disappeared completely, would you notice? You might, but would those other five billion planets notice? Would it jar the, the galactic cosmic play? I mean, maybe the change we're feeling is pretty trivial. You we really want to build a big case about it. Or Peter said, um, let's look at it in time. I mean, that one is in space, but let's look at it in time. And then he gave me a great image. He said, the World Trade Center in New York, which is a very tall building. Buildings. He said, it turns out to be 108 stories high, which... For those of you that know the inner world of 108-ness is surprising. That's an in-joke for because 108 is a very sacred number. He said so if you just think of this 108 story building, you think of simple cells in our history as uh, going up to about the 20th floor. They appear around the 20th floor, before it's all hot gases and stuff like that. Complex cells appear around the 50th floor. Photosynthesis around the 60th floor. Single-cell sexual reproduction about the 70th floor. complex cell reproduction around the 80th floor. Fish appear around the 94th floor. They come to land around the 95th floor. Dinosaurs inhabited the Earth from about the 104th to the 107th floor. Mammals appeared at the beginning of the 108th floor. Humans appeared a few inches from the top. Language appeared a tenth of an inch from the top. Civilization, a hundredth of an inch from the top. The Industrial Revolution, about a thousandth of an inch from the top. So roughly our recorded history is like a coat of paint it's thinner than a coat of paint on the top of the World Trade Center doesn't that give you a sense of our significance and (laughs) how really important we all are but many people say this change I feel is a significant change and they think in terms of a certain kind of history of human history and they say we've been prepared it's the approaching millennium which is after all an arbitrary number at some level it's an approaching millennium this is the big moment This is the moment when there will be a major "Mm," whatever it will be. They say, look at what's happened to us. And then they proceed to list. We nearly have a general field theory. We've cracked the genetic code. Our astronomers now can look back to the beginning of time. Our technology is so advanced it makes Star Trek obsolete. We can put plastic into the wall and get money out. (laughs) Isn't that extraordinary? The fax machine, that blows my mind that I can write something and you can read it across the country or across the world about a second after I write it in my handwriting. Digital sound. Fiber optics, my gosh. A voice can make a sound in Europe that is heard in the United States faster than the time it takes the sound to travel from your brain to your fingertips. How about CNN? I mean, even the White House looks at CNN because it's faster than their Secret Service. So, if you want the information age, we're suddenly all privy to everything that somebody thinks is anything. It's a little dubious what they select. Like the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, as long as it's fit to print to keep the New York Times going. what else have we got at this moment that makes it special look at what's happened in terms of the political climate of the world Cold War the wall I mean I grew up before the wall then came the wall and the wall lasted so long I started to think of it as a permanent fixture and then to watch it being torn down But look what happened there. Everybody said, wow, we're free of something heavy. And for the moment, there was that, ah. And now there's a whole new game emerging, which we'll talk about in a moment. But still, that was a major change. Nuclear tensions. there was a period of many many years when we expected a nuclear bomb to go off at any time now while we may not expect it, it may happen but we don't expect it as much as we used to during the Cold War the United Nations which is kind of limped along is getting stronger. It's may even have teeth soon. The information age has allowed us to know all religions. We know all the religious traditions. They're coming available. Ancient Chinese Taoism and religion, shamanistic religions, indigenous religions from. Africa, from Australia, from the bush, from everywhere. We're starting to have that all available to us. The collective wisdom traditions of the ages are available to us. Credible leaps in medical technology raises some interesting ethical issues, but it's still extraordinary. Some of the things that have happened in the world, like the, um, the real income of the poor of the world, even though there are still lots of problems, as I'll point out in a minute, has increased, doubled in 40 years. The under five death rate has been cut by 50%. Smallpox, something that was a scourge years back, is gone completely from the face of the earth, eradicated by caring people. The average life expectancy in developing countries has increased by a third in the past 15 years. 40 years ago, only 10% of developing countries had safe water. Now, almost 60% have access to safe water. You know, I can go on and on and on with that list to give you a sense that this moment is the culmination of something that we are standing on the shoulders of human history that has brought us to the moment where there may be a moment where there will be a major leap. So we've looked at looking at this moment from various perspectives. Thus far, we've looked at it from cosmic space, galaxies. We've looked at it from the time since the creation of the Earth. We've looked at it from human time, which it's pretty exciting at this moment, whether we will destroy ourselves or turn into something incredible. We don't know, do we? Then there are all the perspectives that you get when you alter your consciousness. All these perspectives that come out of the religious traditions. Like, what is this moment? Is it significant? The Prajnaparamita says, all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of light in a summer cloud a flickering lamp a dream and even though the whole thing that Peter Russell said seems so big from a reincarnational point of view, it's all just passing show. When the Dalai Lama was asked, What did he think of the Big Bang Theory? He said, Which one? <laughs> because in in the traditions of evolution, of vast evolution, or of uh, yugas and kalpas, these vast amounts of time. This is known as the Kali Yuga in that tradition. Kali Yuga means the Iron Age or the Dark Age. It's the age when truth is not rampant, (laughs) in case you hadn't noticed. (laughs) It lasts for about 400,000 years, so relax. In the Yuga system, there are the four Yugas, the Sat Yuga, the Tret quad Yuga, and Kali Yuga. And in, each, in the first Yuga, the bull of truth is standing with all four feet on the ground. And then in each succeeding Yuga, it gets one foot off until it's standing on one leg. That's when you have Watergate and Iran Gate, and, and everybody except assumes everybody's lying all the time. Far out. Imagine a culture where everybody tells the truth all the time. That's the Sat Satyuga. Hmm. When you're looking at these altered states of consciousness, you start to sense that there are planes of reality behind the physical plane that we're talking about with galaxies or with the World Trade Center or with, even human thinking history. That there are spiritual dimensions in the universe in which there is design and wisdom and a kind of a... um, an unfolding way of things, like the Tao Te Ching speaks about. An unfolding way that is not understandable by your rational mind. Most people say what's the meaning of life and the real answer is the one you that has asked that can't know the answer. Because the rational analytic mind that thinks about things thinks about objects Thoughts are objects, and you manipulate objects, and you have linear thoughts. And it's a little subsystem, part of a vast bigger system. And the little system is saying, I want to understand how the big system works. And the big system says, it's none of your business, you're just part of it. And you get very affronted because you think that humans are right at the top of the heap and we should know everything. Now, what's bizarre about it, of course, is that we do know everything, but who we think we are doesn't. (laughs) That's the bizarre predicament we find ourselves in. (laughs) So in one system, you could say that we are in a, a dance, what's called the lila. We're in a dance or a play with the divine. We are an unfolding set of things that are happening. We're in a love affair. And all the stuff of life, including the bomb and nuclear waste and roses and babies and all of it, is part of the whispering dialogue between the lover and the beloved. That pushes you pretty far. And that's the whole devotional path of, of saying, I don't know, it's dualistic. I don't know what you're up to, but I love you. And I look at all of this manifestation of you as a statement of who you are. And as I listen through each thing, each thing veils your being, because I can't see you directly because you don't have any form. But all these forms are like shadows of who you are. And there is an immense devotional literature just focused around that. Because all the way from the Old Testament through... Most of um, the Vedic traditions, uh, you always have, or the, in Islam, you have the, the thousand names of God, which are all names that call, talk about qualities or aspects. They're all fingers pointing at that which is unseeable. And isn't it amazing how much we get into fighting over whether your finger is right and mine is wrong? So in that devotional sense, we are in a relationship with a higher wisdom, and all of the stuff that's going on is part of the unfolding of that. Tikkun Olem in Judaism. The covenant, the covenant to collaborate, to make it all work. Or if you're a physicist, you might look at all of this as just a dance of quarks, quarks. And the particle theory is really kind of materialistic, and the wave theory is kind of spiritual, and the whole thing has a a shining aura of indeterminacy about it. Or maybe what this moment is, all we can say is it's a mystery. I don't know. There's a farmer that has a horse, and the horse runs away. And the neighbor says, that's too bad. And the farmer says, you never know. And the next day, the horse comes back and behind it is a wild horse, beautiful wild horse. And the neighbor says, what good fortune? And the farmer says, you never know. And shortly thereafter, the son of the farmer is taming the wild horse and he's riding the horse and the horse throws him and the son breaks his leg. And the neighbor says, that's too bad. And the farmer says, you never know. Shortly thereafter, the Cossacks come through town conscripting everybody that's eligible, but because the son has a broken leg, they don't take the son. And the neighbor says, how wonderful. And the farmer says, See? (laughs) There we are. You never know. You never know. I work with people that are close to death often because that's part of my work. And I watch people that have been caught in incredible ego-neurotic patterns most of their life. And then they're in pain and suffering. And you say, isn't that terrible? And I say, you never know. Because often, that very pain and suffering Forces an awakening in that individual. When my stepmother was dying, she was a good, tough lady from Boston. She drank gin and smoked cigarettes, played poker. You've got the picture. And when she was going to die, she was going to have no nonsense about it. She was just going to die. But it was a very painful process. And she was pretty tough. We were very close. And then it got to the point where the pain wore through her ego defense, her structure of the control of the scene. She was gonna die in control. Hmm. But that's the fun of death, you see, because death is the one situation that reminds you that change is possible. (laughs) And if you're in a reincarnational mode, you know it's gonna happen again and again, so if you don't learn this time, you'll get another chance. 10,000 more. So she once again had to give up her control. Now, in our culture, when somebody gives up their will or control, you say, oh, that's terrible. Hold on. What's happened to her? Poor thing, she's given up control. Because we're all so freaked about losing control. But I'm kind of a space cadet, so when she lost control, I said, "Wow, lost control." <laughs> and it was just like it was just like a shell of an egg cracked and this absolutely radiant being emerged. Who was so she had she had never known herself that way in this lifetime. Maybe she had when she was a baby before she had concept but she had never known herself that way. And she was just absolutely luminously radiant. And there was joy. And there was pain. And it was, yeah, there's pain, but it was like, sure, there's pain, but look at the universe. Or Ramana Maharshi, the saint, when he was dying and they said, don't leave us, don't leave us, he said, don't be silly, where could I go? I mean, I'm just dropping my body. It's no big deal. What are you getting so upset about? And she just, when her time came, she just floated off. into. (laughs) So I don't know. Was her dying? You never know. You never know. Now, what I've offered you is a whole series of perspectives about this moment. People come up to me and they say, well, don't you think it's Armageddon time? And then other people come up and say, this is the Aquarian age. I think it's all about to happen. <laughs> Don't you? So after, I realized I should have an opinion. <laughs> Even though the third Chinese patriarch warns in the first line of the Sin Xin Ming, it says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. To hold an opinion for this or that is the disease of the mind, it goes on to say. So I thought about it, and I thought, well, let's see what would happen. If it's going to be the end of the world, that means I'm going to die. Now, how will I prepare for my death? Well, the best thing I can do is open my heart, quiet my mind, let go of my expectations, and while I'm waiting... Do what I can to relieve suffering. Now, let's say it's the new age coming. What shall I do? Well, if I'm going to help the new age come, the best thing I can do is quiet my mind, open my heart, and do what I can to relieve suffering. So I realized it didn't make any difference. now what I'm going to be arguing tonight in my rational analytic mind which you should take with a grain of salt I do is that you and I because you must be at least half as mad as I am to be here tonight (laughs) you and I have moved enough through consciousness to have a sense of the relative nature of reality of the nature of all these different perspectives and your ability to do that means that you may be in a position where you are able to serve in a changing situation without freaking. And this is rather critical because... um, Most people, it's interesting, the Buddha pointed out in his second noble truth, or not in his sec, in his not in his noble truths, but in his basic tenets, the tenet of anitya, that everything is changing, all phenomena are changing all the time. It's all changing. But isn't it interesting how our minds attempt to hold it, to stop change. It's as if we see change as an enemy because it frightens us, because we just feel we're barely in control and then change is going to come along and take it away. I mean, I've been through so many changes by now as I get to being a senior citizen. (laughs) It's great fun. I was on a train coming from New Haven to New York, a late night train, and the conductor came along to sell me a ticket, and he ticket? I said, yes. I said, uh, I'd never done this before. I said, a senior citizen ticket? It's like when you're 18, you go in New York to a bar, and you say, a beer? You know, like, <laughs> you expect them to say a beer. <laughs> And the conductor didn't even ask me for identification. (laughs) Very disturbing. (laughs) I mean, I've watched myself deal with change over the years. Like when I had hair and then it started to go. I had a long piece of hair I wrapped around, so... uh, Then I always knew where the wind was. (laughs) And it's interesting when you consider aging in our culture, it's often characterized as loss. While I see aging as the final chapter in the art of living and one of the most exquisite chapters in which you can use the wisdom of a whole lifetime and bring it to fruition as an elder and as a way of dealing with the changing phenomena like I say when I talk at senior citizen groups when I go to Burma to meditate I sit in a room And I draw my awareness in from my ears hearing, my eyes seeing, sensing, and I sit quietly. And I go in and I do this incredible adventure of exploring the way in which my awareness keeps identifying with my thoughts and my sensations. And it's one of the most exciting adventures I've ever been on, the adventure of meditation. I said, here you all are, you're getting deaf, blind, you've all got arthritis, what a perfect time to meditate. Doesn't that flick perspective just a little bit? But most of us are like the caterpillar looking up at the butterfly saying, you're never going to get me up in one of those things. (laughs) But things provoke change, whether we like it or not. We try denial, when something starts to change, we try denying it. Like a prepubescent has made a big collection of baseball cards. And then the testosterone starts to be secreted. And it's hard to give up the baseball cards. But they just don't have the same zing anymore. But you say to the other guys, I'm not going to have anything to do with girls. What are you talking about? This was in my generation. I don't know now. I think everybody gets married at two. But in (laughs) the old days, it used to be different. But as your hormones change, it forces change. The universe changes from inside. (laughs) there's this lovely story of a a man walking down the street. And uh, it's a man about my age, an older man. (laughs) Probably older than me, I think. (laughs) I think about this story. And a voice says, Psst, could you help me out? And the man looks around, and he doesn't see anybody. Psst, could you help me out? Looks again, and he looks down, and there's a frog. He says to the frog, did you speak to me? And the frog said, yeah, could you help me out? So the man says, what do you want? frog says, I'm under a curse, and if you would kiss me, I would turn into the most beautiful, desirable maiden. I would serve you and love you and warm your bed and take care of you, and I'd make you so happy. So the man thinks about it for a while. And then he reaches down, he picks up the frog, and he sticks it in his pocket, and he walks on. After a little while, the frog says, Hey, you forgot to kiss me. The man says well you know at my age it's more interesting to have a talking frog So change occurs because of things, uh, because of things changing inside of us. Change occurs because of information, I mean the information age that has given us a sense of the immediacy of our world, our global village, is dramatically changing our lives we can hardly understand how it's changing our lives. It's so quick and so deep the way it's changing our lives. I mean, I watched as television came to villages in India, villages in Guatemala. There was a point where we in SEVA were working in, with three Guatemalan refugee camps in Mexico. And um, they, they were destitute. And we had helped them get some cement so they didn't have to walk in mud on the floors and so on. And then there were these three camps. And I went to visit these camps with some other members of the board. And the first camp still had no electricity. And they were all sitting there being very Guatemalan. They were Mayan Indians and they looked beautiful and they were just sitting in the, in the late day just quietly. And then we came to the next place and it had electricity. The electricity had been turned on, which we were trying to help them get electricity. And now we came in and there was music playing on a radio and the kids were playing by the light outside with toys and the whole place had a different ambience. We got to the third place, nobody was there to greet us. Nobody was around. We went in. They were all sitting in this room looking at television. And they were looking at an advertisement for soap, for dove soap. And they looked at us like, like, shh. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine what's happening to the world? when Dynasty and Dallas are playing in in South India we are not only marketing coca-cola and a free market economy we are marketing a whole set of values and attitudes and we hardly understand it's interesting we've never had in the government A a wing of the government that assesses new inventions to see what their long term effects will be, except for drugs. But I mean, can you imagine if we had an assessment of the automobile when Henry Ford did his thing? Well, it's going to take up, it's going to create 17% of our carbon dioxide emissions. The highways and parking spaces are going to take two-thirds of every city's space. We would have had some second thoughts, wouldn't we? Like in Los Angeles, when they had a subway system or a trolley system, and then they sold all that land, because General Motors just um, said, wouldn't it be better if everybody had cars? Now you sit like... (laughs) Poor planning, I'd call it. But the information age is a big one that's changing us. Changing economic conditions or changing zeitgeist, changing demography. I mean, uh... By the year 2040, uh, Caucasians will be a minority in the United States. Isn't that going to be fun? I'm so delighted about that. We're going to have all these minority issues. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't begun to play yet. One of the things that awakens people to change is trauma. When something dramatic enough happens to awaken you. Like you're going along worrying about the blouse you bought that is not quite the right shade. And you're driving somewhere and you skid and you skid precipitously and after you've skid and turned around and nearly hit something and you stop and you're shaking the significance of the color of the blouse changes now about an hour later you'll be back with the blouse again because what you see is that we have Massive strategies to hold on to the familiar reality. It's embedded in such a web of reality that you change one thing and pretty soon it slips back in because everything around it holds it in place. So we're talking about trauma. I mean, we thought, for example, when Three Mile Island happened, we were waiting for something like that knowing something would happen we were waiting for the incidence of cancer to go up around the, the nuclear plants it went up everybody says terrible terrible horrible awful the people that were dying of cancer thought so they, their lives changed but almost everybody else almost very slowly insulated themselves against this information and went back to life. Then came Chernobyl. Chernobyl was a much more massive, massive thing. In fact, you don't even have an idea of how massive it is still. How much trauma is enough to bring about real change? Real change in your style of life. We're a little bit like do you know the experiment of the this must be my frog night, the experiment of the frog. When you put a frog into boiling water, it goes oof and it jumps out, as you would. But if you put a frog into cold water and you very slowly heat the water, the frog boils to death. Now, what I'd like to do is read to you a list of interesting statistics. And I'd just like you to open yourself to them because they are describing the temperature of the water. don't get upset keep all your perspectives it's all a bubble and a dream don't forget today 60,000 people died of malnutrition on in our global village 60,000 human beings. Many of them children dying in their mother's arms. This year, 15 million will die of malnutrition. Our prison population has doubled since 1980, doubled in 10 years. We have between 600,000 and 1 million people in prison. That's the largest proportion of any country. The population is about five and a half billion people on Earth now. It's increasing at 90 million per year. In 1800, there were only one billion. And 40 years from now, there'll be twice as many as there are now, or 11 billion that is every 40 years it doubles feeling the warmth of the water we now have nuclear weapons in the United in the world that are equal to 10 billion tons of TNT. The entire Second World War used 3 million tons. This is 10 billion tons. Weaponry costs $1 trillion a year. That means $2 million per minute. One week of that would eradicate all malnutrition from the face of the earth. Doesn't that give you pause as to what we have become? I mean, don't you think paranoia is out of hand? Isn't that bizarre? That we will let each other starve to death in order to buy more weapons to keep safe from death. Doesn't that seem peculiar to you? It does to me. The drug trade is presently $500 billion trade. One F-15 jet plane costs $43 million to build and $12,000 an hour to operate. Our debt is now 14% of our budget for the interest. Our interest is $200 billion a year. Our debt is $4 trillion. That's money we spent that we didn't have in order to get there faster. Doesn't that seem strange? Didn't the water get awfully warm when you weren't noticing? When everything was saying, look that way, and all the time the water was rising. By the year 2000, there will be 220,000 tons of high-level nuclear waste, and we have no idea what to do with it. All we know is that it contaminates anything that it touches for roughly 250,000 years and creates cancer. Isn't that interesting? What do you suggest we do with it? Have we thought of maybe we shouldn't be producing these things? Well, the water is just a little warm. More teenage boys die of gunshot wounds than all other natural causes. 2,500 young people under the age of 18 were arrested for murder last year. In 1990, the police took weapons from 280 children under 10. That certainly sounds like the neuromancers of some science fiction thing. By the year 2000, there will be between 40 and 110 million people that will be HIV positive. Last year, 12.9 million were HIV in the United States, 2.5 million have died. We thought we had solved civil rights. The median family income for black African Americans is one half that for whites. 43% of black children are in poverty. In Washington, four times as many black students are jailed as graduate high school. Women. Women in much of our wonderful country are still treated like indentured servants. Their salaries are still way below men, and they are given still second-level jobs. In inner cities, more black children between the age of 15 and 25 are likely to be to die from guns than had they been in the battle in Vietnam. Our inner cities are more dangerous than Vietnam. Family. single-mother households have doubled in the past 40 years and in those households 45 percent are below the poverty level. 20 percent of children now living are living in and will grow up in poverty. more than one-half of all marriages contracted from nineteen seventy on will end in divorce the extended family has broken down to such an extent that people are reaching out to create family surrogates very often around pathology so that the people you're closest to end up being people in your AA group or some other group that represents your pathology. Wealth. In the 1980s, the generation when we all made it, 1% of the population received 70 percent of the income generated by that boom. The next 19 percent receive 46 percent of the income generated by that boom. The poorest 20 percent of our population lost 11 percent of the income generated. The next 20% lost 7%. In other words, the poor got poorer, the rich got richer. We've created in the past 20 years a permanent underclass in the United States. And we weren't even watching. The water was just getting warm so gently. And the middle class was being encouraged with Dynasty and Dallas. You can have part of the pot of gold. Just ignore those people and grab. I got caught. I got caught. The number of children that live in poverty in the United States, the percentage, is four times the average for developed countries. This big, affluent, wonderful country. And then just the environment. We are losing a hundred and fifty species daily. A quarter of all species will be lost in fifty years because. Most varieties of species are in the rainforest. And we are decimating the rainforest at the rate of the state of South Dakota every year. For example, there are 300 species of trees in a two acre area in the Peruvian rainforest, and there are only 300 species of trees in all of North America. The speed of the destruction of the rainforest has accelerated 80% since 1980. Add to that the ozone, global warming, contamination of groundwater, mercury counts in fish, ocean contamination, air and environmental illnesses. Is the water warm enough for you to jump? Is the change that we feel in the air provoked by our awakening? Is it just because there's a new administration, just because Hillary and the boys came into office? Is it some critical thing that suddenly makes you look around and say, this doesn't feel right? And when you look around and say it, is it already too late? Since the rainforests have so much to do with, uh, with environment, environment, I was interviewing John Seed, a Deep ecologist from Australia, and I said, John, tell me, where are we in this whole thing with the inertia and all of the way we're doing it, and the way poor countries keep cutting down the wood because they need it for survival? He says, From where I can see, it's too late. Pretty optimistic. He said, It would take a miracle at this point. He says, but you know, don't underestimate us. We did come up out of the ocean. (laughs) But it's interesting for us to face this moment without looking away, without going into denial, without saying, oh, well, I can't be bothered, or what can I do about any of that, or, oh. The point of that is that things that change is happening, much of it traumatic. It's like giving birth. Birth is a beautiful thing of what finally happens, but the process is hard. And when a process is hard and people aren't don't have a place to stand where they can handle the hardness of the process like a good breathing method they freak and when they freak when they get frightened they contract that's the fundamentalist movement and when they contract they get violent